1: Welcome to RBG Beyond Notorious. This is the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the CNN film RBG and explores the life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In this 2000s episode, we'll hear from Lily Ledbetter, who will tell us about her landmark Supreme Court case in 2006 and RBG's role in it.
2: The first thing when I saw that note, which someone gave me to to warn me, um, it really sent chills throughout my body because I thought about all the dollars that I had lost through the years. And then the next thing I thought about was my retirement and my 401k and someday my Social Security. All of this has been affected by these 19 years of underpayment.
1: Later, we'll catch up with the creator of the notorious RBG Tumblr. I thought it was a fun kind of way to
3: Celebrate her role as that dissenting and, and 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 you know sort of central liberal justice, but also the other piece of it is just her her career
1: before becoming a justice. I'm Poppy Harlow, and I'm joined throughout this journey by CNN's chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubman. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Poppy. <laughs> That's how he sounds all the time. Uh, So if you heard our first episode, we spoke with RBG's granddaughter, Clara, and also our Supreme Court expert, Joan Piskupic, about the court in the Trump era. So now we're going to take a step back to the 2000s and bring you through the Obama years. This was a pivotal point, Jeff, for Justice Ginsburg, uh, not just professionally, but also personally, I mean, she survives these two bouts with cancer. Her husband, Marty, uh, who she was extraordinarily close to, um, dies from cancer. Um, this was this was a very critical time.
4: I mean, she has had a rough passage, particularly through her 70s, two yeah. bouts with cancer, yep. col- uh, You know, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, which I don't think anybody has to be told how serious that is. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the death, the death of Marty in 2010. And, you know, one of the things, as someone who's reported on Ginsburg a lot, I mean, the one thing you heard from the very beginning was this was one of the great marriages in the history of the world, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, not only did they love each other the way many spouses do, but Marty's support for her career at a time when men were not... Uh, famous or for for supporting serious yeah. professional careers was was extraordinary while he was having his yeah. own distinguished career as a tax lawyer was a really signal yeah. event in her life.
1: It was. Uh, well, she, she she's said many times and told me in my interview with her, I mean, that he was the only boy that thought I had a brain and he really embraced her intelligence. He would brag to his uh, colleagues in law school. My wife's on law review, and that is no small feat at Harvard Law or any law school. This was, Jeffrey, a marriage of true equals well
4: and 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 also you know we've talked about this sort of cinematic aspect of Ruth's life that, that this you know the dramas that she's had they meet in Cornell yeah they spend a couple of years in Oklahoma when he's in the service then together they go to Harvard Law School at Harvard Law School Marty gets testicular cancer where you know which is of course incredibly serious and in those days any kind uh. of cancer could have been could have been fatal Ruth at that point has a baby Jane Jane Ginsburg, her daughter, now a distinguished law professor. So Ruth Ginsburg is bad, is dealing with a desperately sick husband, a new baby and being a student at Harvard Law School for herself, but also collecting notes so that Marty could keep up. Right. I mean, think, of you know. And
1: that's when she got used to sleeping two hours a night. I mean, truly, she took care of everyone else before herself. But for a man she loved so much, she called her constant uplifter.
4: Right. And and one of the things you know, I had the privilege of knowing Marty oh. as well is that their personalities could not have been more different. Uh, I'll tell you Marty's story. <laughs> um when I I wrote when I wrote The Nine, um I, you know, I, I after The Nine I ran into him at a, an occasion at his law firm and he comes up to me. He doesn't say hello. He says, "How many push-ups can you do?" I said I can do several <laughs> push-ups. I said, well, "Why do you ask?" He says, "Well, you said My wife was frail, and she can do 25 push-ups. Wow. And, 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 you know, he said it in a good-natured way, and he was sort of, you know, ribbing me. But it was just indicative of how protective and supportive she was. But he was also funny. He was outgoing. He was, you know, um, he was a famous great chef. Oh, yes. um, Which Ruth Bader Ginsburg... Is not. You know, she is banned from the kitchen by everyone involved. She's a horrible chef. She doesn't. She yeah. doesn't cook. Um, but he was a gourmet chef, yeah. and when he died, um, Samuel Lido's mm. um, wife uh, organized a book of his recipes that um, is sold at the Supreme Court. That's Bookshop, right. Which is really incredible. And his recipes for making a baguette. <laughs> Has over fifty steps. It is the most complicated <laughs> recipe I have ever seen in my life. But it's indicative of how you know he yeah. took that part of his life so seriously.
1: You know, she she has said only when fathers are equal parents to their children will women truly be free. I could not agree with that more. In that I am living it. Right. The only reason I kids? yeah, and the only reason I can go to work at four in the morning is because my husband is there with our kids and by the way my baby's not sleeping through the night so who's up right and and i couldn't agree with it more he really did at that time jeffrey take equal care of their children. While having this, he was like known as one of the best or the best tax attorney in America.
4: In fact, um, one of the people I interviewed for my story about her was um, H. Ross Perot, Mm. a man who has a few dollars. And he was and Marty was was his tax. tax Oh, wow. For forever and was extremely devoted to Marty and Ruth, which is sort of an odd uh, an odd political coupling. But it was just indicative of Mm -hmm. how respected Marty was. Um, for his own achievements.
1: I, I was struck um, by the, you know, she talks now publicly about this letter that he wrote to her when he's in the hospital dying.
4: And, and if I can just brag, that that letter first appeared in public in my New Yorker story. About it did.
1: You know, that's where I that's where I got it. from. I
4: was just, you know, I just like
1: I'm pleased about that i'm pleased about it too and no i mean you're right jeffrey because it gives you this this lens into their their relationship um and part of it reads well you should say where it was found tell, tell well, us. well just i mean in the drawer right in the drawer i mean he's in the
4: hospital you know in the final stages of mm-hmm. cancer And Ruth opens the drawer of the hospital room Mm -hmm. and finds this letter, and and it reads in significant part, it's to Ruth. My dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have loved in my life, parentheses, (laughs) aside from children, parents, etc., which is like a great tax lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) You are the only person I have loved in my life, aside from children, parents, etc., and I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. And, you know, that was not just that letter. It was the way he lived Mm -hmm. his
1: life. It was. So... When she is on the Supreme Court uh, before and in the 2000s, before Marty passes, that period from 2006 to 2009, after Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, you know, whom, you know, that famous book Sisters in Law was written about the two of them and how important they were to one another. After she steps down from the court and before 2009, when Justice Sotomayor is confirmed, this is a difficult point for her and she talks about it being very lonely
4: you know um, R- Ruth Ginsburg is not you know a shrieking violet she's not a sat. she's not you know someone who uh, needs a lot of coddling but she is also someone who recognizes that sisterhood is powerful yeah. and uh, the fact that she was the only woman on the Supreme Court for those three years and by the way she didn't know that it would end in 2009. I mean, when, from 2006 right. on, she might have thought, I'm going to spend the next decade or however long I'm on this court a- a- as the only woman. So it was, um, you know, it, it, it was both it was dark politically because mm-hmm. it was the Bush years and she was not, uh, you know, in, in line politically and and. Um, the president had filled chief Justice's job with John Roberts replacing William Rehnquist Uh, Samuel Alito very conservative justice Mm -hmm. replaced the far more moderate Sandra Day O'Connor so she was in a kind of political exile as well as being by herself Mm -hmm. um, as the only woman and it was not a happy time professionally
1: listen to what she told me when I asked her this question help me finish this sentence okay There will be enough female justices on the Supreme Court when there are?
5: You know what the answer is. When there are nine, of course.
1: So joining us now for a look at the RBG of the 2000s, a woman uh, who was very touched by her work on the court, Lily Ledbetter. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. So we... Many of us know your name because of the, uh, you know, the law that was was signed into law by President Obama, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. But before that became the law of the land, you were the subject of quite a fight in the Supreme Court. Tell us about your case.
2: My case really started in uh, early 1998 for me, uh, because that's when I learned that I had been working for 19 years for a company that paid me significantly less than the men who had the same position. We just had a different shift, but I was making 40% less than the other three guys. This and is at the
1: Goodyear Tire that's Factory. That's the Goodyear
2: Tire in Factory in Gadsden, Alabama, and I had been there for 19 years. And the problem is the positions that we held, we got overtime, and there was a lot of overtime work. So the first thing, when I saw that note which someone gave me to, to warn me, um, it really sent chills throughout my body because I thought about all the dollars that I had lost through the years. And then the next thing I thought about was my retirement and my 401k and someday my Social Security. All of this has been affected by these 19 years of underpayment. So I filed the charge with Equal Employment Commission in Birmingham. But before
4: you, get, you, you get, get to your legal case, right. can you just talk about what it was like to work in that plan? I mean, what did, what did the plan do?
2: The plant uh, in Gadsden, Alabama, where we made tires, uh, it was a huge.
4: You don't, you don't you, making tires, is a dirty business. I mean, this is not like a uh, like the, all of us who work in offices, right? I mean, talk about what what a tire plant is like.
2: It's dirty. It's hot in most areas, and it's smelly. Uh, some places, uh, I spent two years in the mill room. That's where the lamp black, and you throw in uh, chemicals and raw rubber and different components to heat it up like in a big mixer, hot mixer, mix it up, and it screwed it out. And that's the rubber then that goes into the tires. Uh, it's, you have to be quite intelligent. It really doesn't hurt to have an engineering background to work there. But the lamp black was just horrendous in the meal room because uh, one of the female electricians warned me, she said, if you'll wear a lot of makeup, um, and I, I used a military hat to cover up my hair because it was blonde and short and, um, and my wore coveralls just like the guys, and I was the only woman back there. I was the only woman in most places. In fact, most women who went to work there in the management didn't make it. Uh, I think as far as I know in those um, years in Gadsden, I probably made it longer than anyone. Um, but it was a good job. That's what's so sad about it. It was but a good
1: job, even when you. I mean, you were a manager there, and you won all of these like top performance awards for for the work. You say it was a good job, even though you now know you were being underpaid every single paycheck.
2: It was still a good job. I was just underpaid. Mm. That's the problem, and that's why I work so hard today is trying to help straighten this country out because I'm. I was just the tip of the iceberg. I learned so, Jeffrey. Lily wins um,
1: wins her case in the district court. Right, and then what
4: happens? And and, and um, you know the, the the this is both a fascinating legal case, but it's also a, a lesson about how sort of how the world, real world works. You know, Lily. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you were tipped off sort of secretly true that that you had been paid very much less than your counterparts.
2: Right? Absolutely. Because see, the company I worked for told me when I went to work, if I ever discussed my pay, I would not have a job.
4: Right. So, so that in itself is very unusual that you were fortunate enough to get that tip. Most women in, in a situation like yours wouldn't even know that they, uh, they were being underpaid because the, it was in the Goodyear's interest to, to keep every, every, everybody in the dark. So Lily gets a lawyer, files this lawsuit, and the, the key issue becomes when did the discrimination start? And and the issue becomes one of statute of limitations because mm-hmm. you know the law says you can't file an old case because the evidence is gone. There are always statutes of limitations. So the question was, if Lily had been discriminated against for nineteen years, should she get all that money for the nineteen years that she lists? Or the the statute of limitations was how long? I forgot. It's
2: 180 days.
4: 180 days. So right. just a few months of of discrimination in pay, mm-hmm. um, and that was the case. And in the district court, Lily won, and they said you should have um, all the back pay for all the years you were discriminated against. But when the case gets to the United so, States,
1: but good. So the company appeals. The company
4: appeals, that. and the case winds up in the United States Supreme Court. And Lil- Lily loses mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in an opinion by Justice Alito. Right. I forgot, what was the vote? Six to three?
2: Five to four. Five, oh, it was five, five to, four. to four. Five to four. So
4: Kennedy, Justice Kennedy right. sided with uh, the four more conservative and justices. That's true. And, and Justice Alito wrote the opinion, and he said, under Title VII, which is the law that regulates can- uh, uh, d- discrimination against women in the workplace, right. it said she- Lily was only entitled. To back pay for 180 days, not 19 right. years. And Ruth Ginsburg, the reason we're all here, is outraged by this mm-hmm. d- ruling and reads her dissent from the, the bench. She does. It's an unusual thing for a justice. Not unprecedented by any means, but an unu- it's a way of when justices really are, are 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 outraged by what their colleagues have done they read
5: a dissent from the bench
1: she did she called it a parsimonious reading of title 7 and she said
5: this in our view the court does not comprehend or is indifferent to the insidious way in which women can be victims of pay discrimination today's decision counsels sue early on when it is uncertain whether discrimination accounts for the pay disparity you are beginning to experience. Indeed, initially, you may not know that men are receiving more for substantially similar work.
4: There's one very important part of the dissenting opinion that we we didn't quote there, which is she says now the ball is in Congress's court. Right. Because Congress this wasn't a constitutional decision. This was just an interpretation of a federal law. And she says, Congress can fix this. Mm -hmm. And she basically says, Congress, go fix it. And it just so happens this opinion is it's 2008, right? Lily lost the case in 2008. So it, it looks like there is going to be a Democratic president because Obama was favored to win the election and the Democrats had the control of the House and Senate. So so he she's basically saying this really may yeah. get fixed, but you have to do it politically, not through the legal system.
2: And they, they listened and, and they did. They did. Uh, Actually, the verdict came out in May of 07.
4: Oh, seven. So but it was in, and, the, in the lead up. To yeah.
2: The, to and, and may I also add Please. to the interpretation of the law. The reason I got to the Supreme Court for this case to be heard after all this was simply because all the other cases like mine had gone on, had Uh the interpretation of the law it was not exactly black or white, and so the interpretation had to play in. And on the back pay, you can only get two years back pay. I don't care if you've worked there 100 years. As mm. far as an individual can go back on back pay mm-hmm. is the two years.
4: I, how did you feel when you lost?
2: I sort of expected it, but I knew when I made the decision— I knew I was two years away from retirement, but I had to do it because it was the right thing to do. Hmm. And I think whatever it is that drives Justice Ginsburg to the right thing is what drove Lily Ledbetter too, because it was the right thing to do. And I have talked to so many, many people who've gotten their due day due day with their money that they should have gotten after the Ledbetter bill passed. But by
1: the way, I mean... You won, in essence, because Congress passed this law. The lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act became the first piece of legislation President Obama signed as president. But you never got that back pay, did you? No,
2: never got a dime. Because you lost in the court, you never got never a Never got a dime. But I've won in, in many other areas.
1: You say of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she may be small, but she has a firm backbone. What did her dissent mean to you personally?
2: It meant the world to me because when that... Uh, jury came back with that verdict in the lower federal court. I knew I had, they saw it like I did. They saw it like the lawyers saw it on our side. They understood it. It was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. <clears throat> but when Justice Ginsburg read that dissent and Linda Greenhouse called, she said those words bounced off the wall. She said, I wish you could have heard it. And it just, Linda
4: Greenhouse was the New York Times reporter covering it.
2: Mm-hmm. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And she called me personally. She said, you weren't there. I said, no. Mm-hmm. She said, I wish you could have been. And she said it would just send chills. Although, y'all get chills and goosebumps today just thinking about it because knowing how fierce she was. And she was the one who asked a lot of questions during the um, hearing. And, um I really knew when I went into this, I warned my family we'd be in it eight years. It took nine years from the time I filed the first charge until I got the final verdict.
1: Can I just before we go play for everyone, President Obama, what he said when he signed this legislation? She was standing right next to him.
4: First of all, it is fitting that the very first bill that I signed, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Restoration Act, That it is upholding one of this nation's founding principles, that we are all created equal and each deserve a chance to pursue our own version
1: of happiness. But I also understand you've been talking to this White House, to Ivanka Trump about this issue. Is I, that have, right?
2: I have not met with her, though. I would like to meet with her and show her the um, sheet with all of the breakdowns on all the pay of the gap of when I worked, just the disparity and show her exactly what that meant to my family, because that's what I carried to all of the offices in the House and the Senate to get support for the Ledbetter bill. And another thing that I really want to come out to is one thing that I'm so proud of, that bill was sponsored and co-sponsored by Republicans and Democrats. It doesn't belong to either party. This is a national epidemic, and it needs to be corrected. Lily
1: Ledbetter, thank you for fighting the fight for all of us.
2: Well, thank you. I, I couldn't let it go then. I still can't let it go today. And I just think the world of Justice Ginsburg. I got to meet her in November of 2010. And that was the last thing on my checkoff on my bucket list.
1: Oh, You're not going anywhere anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> thank you, Lily. Mm-hmm. Stick around. We'll speak to the creator of the notorious RBG Tumblr next.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu,
4: which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating
0: in pigs, that would be a concern.
5: That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned.
0: Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So with the retirement then of Justice John Paul Stevens in 2010, Jeff, RBG really becomes the senior liberal justice on the Supreme Court. And then you have in 2009, 2010, President Obama nominates two liberal female justices to the court, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. But when it it comes to RBG in this period, she is a recognizable figure to students of history, of feminist history, Supreme Court watchers, news junkies. But in 2013— that is when she really becomes this internet sensation, right?
4: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, it's a bad year for liberals at the Supreme Court 2013. And um, Ginsburg um, is the leader of the liberal wing and she files dissent after dissent, including several uh, spoken from the bench. And it, it, that moment is the time she starts to become more recognizable to the public.
1: That's right. So here to guide us through this major moment in RBG's life is Shauna Knizhnik. She is the woman who created the blog Notorious RBG, and she is currently a Dunn Fellow at the American Civil Civil Liberties Union, where, of course, RBG worked in the 70s doing uh, doing so much to uh, pave the way for, for equality for women. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So notorious. Yes. (laughs) How did you draw the connection?
3: Um, Well, it was actually a friend of mine who posted the hashtag originally, but it just seemed completely like it made so much sense to me. It was just a perfect encapsulation of, I think, the anger um, that a lot of people I know were feeling at what the court was doing for the most part that term and in particular that one week. uh, I should note that
1: week I'm glad you bring that up right this is this one week in 2013 she fires off five dissents from the bench um, Shelby County versus Holder a huge huge case and and noted uh, dissent um, and it struck down a provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 Um, so continue yes.
3: That's right. So that same week, she dissented in a number of other cases as well, dealing with employment discrimination, um, affirmative action as well. So and in particular, as you mentioned, the Shelby County Beholder case was kind of the you know biggest piece of news um, in terms of the court striking down this central legis- piece of legislation from the civil rights era.
1: Let's and- listen to part of her her dissent, actually, uh, which, which she read in that decision.
5: The great man who led the march from Selma to Montgomery, and there called for the passage of the Voting Rights Act, foresaw progress, even in Alabama. The arc of the moral universe is long, he said, but it bends toward justice if there is a steadfast commitment to see the task through to completion. That commitment has been deserved by today's decision.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think that that really encapsulates the historical importance of what the court was doing. You know, the majority opinion written by Justice Roberts really wanted to put the civil rights era in you know, on the sort of bookshelf of history that this is so long ago, times have changed so much. The formula that Congress uses to determine which states need to get their voting re- uh, changes pre-cleared by the federal government is simply out of date. And, you know, based on not much constitutional theory, um, but we just think that that's unfair and therefore it's unconstitutional.
4: Sh- and she. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Shauna, I, I just one of the things that that is so curious about the the sort of the the notorious movement is like why why I mean why, why you know Stephen Breyer descended too right why did um, the, the your the hashtag the cult of R B G take 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 off
3: right well I think it's a number of things I think part of it is the fact that she's just so. Such an unlikely pop cultural icon in a lot of ways. She is pretty
0: old.
4: She's
1: 80. You can say it. She's She's 85. She's she's
4: pretty old. Yes, that's true. Right. I mean,
3: older women in our society are generally not celebrated, particularly not as cool, hip, um, you know, cultural figures. And, you know, she speaks with a quiet tone. She's very deliberate with her words. But I thought that sort of juxtaposition that contrast is what obviously makes it humorous to compare her to this larger-than-life rapper. Um, but again, the fact that she is speaking out, the fact that she has dissented and, and become such a force of dissent on the bench mm-hmm. because of, of, of just the way history has taken the Supreme Court, I, I thought it was uh, a fun kind of way to celebrate her role as that dissenting and and, and, and you know sort of central liberal justice. But also, the other piece of it is just her her career before becoming a justice. Most Supreme Court justices don't have the kind of career that she had in terms of being an advocate for equal justice um, and really changing history for uh, a discriminated group. If you go back to, I mean, President Clinton compared her to Justice Marshall, and that's sort of the closest analog that we have in the modern Modern era, but most most Supreme Court justices don't have that kind of history, and so I think as feminism has become more of a, an accepted um, movement, in, especially among young people and young women in particular, and the sort of combination of um, you know higher culture, this exalted institution, the Supreme Court. I was trying to just bring it to the masses and show that you can have fun with these things and and, and talk about serious issues, you know, um, but also have fun with it.
4: What, and, and and your book is in that spirit. You and Erin an Carmon decide to do this this book, uh, Notorious RBJ: read. The Life and Times of the uh, Notorious RBG: The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and. You know, what's so great about your book is that it's kind of this weird hybrid of at once a very serious analysis of her life and career. But it also has cartoons mm-hmm. and pictures and music and 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 talk about how you came up with the idea of, you know, for those of us who just write like boring paragraphs, <laughs> how you turned this her life into this And I I say this in in admiration, kind of this superior comic book.
1: And to Jeffrey's point, apparently your book sings as well to us. Yes, (laughs) it's
4: got music, (laughs) a lot of
1: references to music. It does. It it does. Thank you.
3: Yes, I think um, one review called it uh, sort of a a combination of the Talmud and a scrapbook. Um, (laughs) So we were trying to, I mean, it was kind of like creating a new form of biography that just didn't exist, um, and that was sort of in the spirit of what I tried to do with the blog as well. Was this uncharted territory of of combining serious, um, you know, description of of her of her life, talking mm-hmm. about real cases, and and providing accurate information to a larger audience, while also having fun with. Memes and comics and tattoos and you know all the sort of fan art that was being organically created
1: um, by by, yeah. by N- her fans.
4: N- R B G does not have a tattoo. I was just going to say, be clear. but
1: what would it be? What would it be if if she did?
3: <laughs> I I do want to clarify. Yes, R B G does not have a <laughs> tattoo, and in fact, she um, is quite shocked at the fact that people are getting her face tattooed on uh, them. Um, she reacted quite strongly negatively to that. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think if she were to get a tattoo in some alternate universe, it might be um, something that says equal citizenship stature, that's something, or, you know, we the people. Mm-hmm. I think those are things that she has worked for her entire right. life. Um But yeah, I mean, it was definitely for, in terms of creating the book, I was approached by, um, who ended up becoming my editor uh, at HarperCollins, uh, Julia Shafitz, And she basically suggested the idea of turning the blog into a book. And Mm. I was connected to Erin Carmon, who is a journalist who does work on feminism and the law. So it was a perfect kind of connection. And then we kind of had the same vision of, Trying to tow that balance between Mm -hmm. providing uh, a full, accurate story of her life and her work and the cases that she worked on and the cases that she's decided, but also having fun and and trying to make her a a fully fleshed out human.
1: Before we go quickly, I mean, you've had a chance to visit uh, Justice Ginsburg in her chambers. How does she feel about being this phenomenon and being the notorious RBG? Does she embrace it?
3: She absolutely embraces it. Um, I don't know how she felt initially. I think it might have been surprising to her, and I know that her clerks had to tell her who Notorious B.I.G. Uh, was initially, um, but now she has completely embraced it. She gives out the t-shirts and the tote bags and mm-hmm. book as gifts. Um, so I think she's having fun with it. it. She likes to say that she's amazed that at 85 everyone wants mm-hmm. to take her picture. So. Uh, I think, again, because she's sort of the least likely person to seek out that limelight, it's just, it's kind of fun for her.
1: I mean, people gave me onesies for my babies with RBG, (laughs) with the notorious RBG with the crown on them. Who better? Who better. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Again, it's a fascinating read, a fascinating book. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Shana. Thanks, Poppy and Jeff. All right. So... Thank you all for listening. And on our next episode of RBG Beyond Notorious, we're going to take you back to the 90s. Remember the 90s? I do well. Jeffrey certainly does. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. This is when RBG was, signed, uh, was sworn in as the second female justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. I believe that in the years ahead, she will be able to be a force for consensus building on the Supreme Court, just as she has been on the court of appeals. Keep listening. Her story continues next. And don't forget to watch the CNN film RBG this fall. Quality
0: sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.